Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for being here today. We got a fucking rad episode. It's the first time I have triangulated a conversation on this particular podcast. And this one is between two people who I really look up to in their views on spirituality and practice and as well as cultural observation. This is Alex Ebert, the lead of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, and since then has become quite prominent on his Substack writings as the bad guru, making cultural spirituality observations and some really insightful things on there. And the other man is Daniel Thorson. Uh, He is from the Emerge podcast. He hosts an amazing podcast that has been really rocking my world lately. I highly recommend you check it out. Um, Although there's some really heavy shit on there, and I've been kind of reeling in the last couple of days as I've listened to two podcasts of his from a few years ago with Vinay Gupta and Dr. Jim Bendel which if you listen to those two and need somebody to process with, go ahead and email me because I need to process with you too. But um, Daniel is the head of curriculum at the Monastic Academy in Vermont, where you can basically move there to be a monk for free. They will pay all of your room and board, and you can work remote and keep your job and become a monk in what I think is a really cool way. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, But anyway, this conversation, these two guys, just um, each of them have such a unique and impressive observation of modern spirituality and what it means and what the practices are and what the pitfalls are. And that's why I wanted to bring them together uh, for a conversation. I had actually scheduled with Daniel Thorson and then... I just kind of last minute reached out to Alex. I was like, Alex, you want to join on this? And he was totally stoked to do it. And um, as you're about to hear, these guys had never really heard of each other and immediately were uh, stoked to be in conversation with one another. So I'm quite proud of myself for making this connection. They, um, I I tried to stay out of the way as much as I could, um, but it was really fun. So I know you're going to enjoy this as much as I did. We talked about westernized Buddhism. We talk about the spirituality under a capitalistic paradigm. We talk about how mindfulness can increase selfishness. We talk about the paradigm of identity. We talk about status anxiety and transcending the fear of death and... Daniel also remarks on Jordan Hall's most recommended thing that people do preparing for the world to change and or collapse, which is scary shit, which is a big part of what Daniel talks about on his Emerge podcast, which I so highly recommend. So if you like this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. That's patreon.com slash airy in the air. And if you want to work with me, I do have a philosophical coaching practice. I am in open enrollment. You can go to airyintheair.com and find the coaching page. There is a link there. You can schedule a free 45-minute coaching call. We can see what's what there. I'd love to work with you. And without further ado, here's some music that 
let's call this, we're going to play Alex's song, Truth, because I really fucking like it. It's dope. So enjoy Alex's song, and here's the talk between myself, Daniel Thorson, and Alex Ebert. Enjoy.
Okay, guys, stoked you're here. Today, this is my first threesome on the podcast, and it's fitting that it's both two very open-minded men. So um, I think let's start with a little bit of introduction here just so that we can get to know each other. Daniel, why don't you tell us, give us a little bit of your background here. Yeah, sure. So um, I've worked primarily in the kind of Buddhist world. I, I used to work for a company called Buddhist Geeks. And then I transitioned to where I am now at a place called the Monastic Academy, which is in northern Vermont, which is sort of like a, an attempt to reimagine what a monastery might be given the cultural context we find ourselves in, the planetary context of a meta crisis and kind of um, collapse dynamics, and how to weave a wisdom institution that is uh, responsive in that sort of world. Uh, so I live here with like 30 people, and I um, uh, right now I'm serving as the assistant director, uh, but I also teach, do curriculum design, things like that. Um, and we live, I live here year round, um, you know, about to go into a two day silent retreat. And so it's a little, you know, it's, it's like what a monastery is, but with a sort of unique flavor. Um, besides that, I have a background in sort of uh, systems change and contemplative practice. I like organized with Occupy Wall Street. I started a new American political party, which failed and left me pretty disenchanted with political change. Um, spent a lot of time on silent retreat, you know, tons and tons of time sitting on my butt, um, trying not to do anything, but failing. And, uh, yeah, I, I also, I also host a podcast myself called Emerge, um, where I talk to people about topics like systems change and personal and collective transformation and just the whole random hodgepodge of topics that I, I imagine you cover. On, on your show, Ari, or Eric, yeah, sorry. Eric. We, uh, yeah. we, we do have some overlapping topics and uh, guests, and I love your podcast. Um, there's also, isn't there, isn't there a funny story of how you, weren't you in silent retreat when COVID came online? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> that's probably my, my greatest claim to fame is that after I did a, I went into a 75-day solitary retreat the day that the World Health Organization declared COVID as a pandemic and then missed the first two and a half months of what, what I hear was a pretty weird time. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was subsequently written up in the New York Times about it and uh, got like, went like globally viral. Uh, it was very strange. Not what I, how I recommend leaving a silent retreat at all. <laughs> don't, don't don't get in the New York Times after 75 days of silence. That's really interesting. Those two flavors don't go well together. Yeah. Mm. 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 Okay. And Alex is famous, so we don't actually need to introduce him. <laughs> no, go ahead, Alex. Give us a give us a, a short one here. Uh, wow. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero started that a while ago. Uh, um, for the context of this conversation, mm -hmm. um, 
um, spirituality has sort of plagued me um, in every way, uh, personally, politically, culturally, analytically. And so I'm glad to be here having this conversation because it's still one of the most interesting topics um, that can be spoken about just because it's so fraught with um, so many layers of interpretation and manipulation. So, yeah. Okay. So I think you just, even in those things, I think we just kind of like cut the workout. I think why I thought it would be so interesting to have you two dialogue and for us to be in conversation together is because Alex has written and spoken about new ageism as he's called it and has kind of illuminated some of the shadow in our modern spirituality and how, especially in the mainstream it's manifest and Daniel with you you know, what I heard you say was that you guys are trying to take a new, more contextualized look at what a monastery would be. And my assumption there is that there's some kind of positive impact that that should have on the world, as opposed to just people sitting there navel gazing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would be cool to start if Alex, we could get kind of like an overview of what you see as the spiritual landscape right now and particularly it's shadow Mm. and we could kind of come into some dialogue about you know how daniel sees that and where that might be going and a direction that might be um productive helpful yeah um i am am i coming through clear Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so. Okay. Um, I'll try and thread the needle here in a terse sort of way. Uh, we live in a capitalist world. Everything. Um, Well, let me say that uh, economics represents generally the base structure of any paradigm. Um, You know, eating, uh, where you're going to sleep, how you're going to survive. And then there's the libidinal economy of sex. But economics is sort of this base structure, like the fundaments of surviving. And then on top of that, we build myth and we start to make sense of things. when the base structure has baked within it the idea of self-serving individualism, everything is going to sort of filter through that lens. And so that, that's, that's one aspect. So everything's filtering through sort of this capitalist lens. <clears throat> and I can, I, I, if we want, I can tell sort of like a whole story about, you know, from, from basically starting with heliocentricity up through um, to today, how we sort of built this religion of self. But um, 
but anyway, so that's one aspect, the, the, the economic lens through which everything is being perceived. Um, we have also this strand of like very legitimate, earnest self-discovery. Um, and so when those two things sort of combine, clash, mix, like you start to get a really muddy view of like, it, it becomes very difficult to parse where one, you know, sort of thing ends and the other begins, where earnestness ends and sort of manipulation and, um, and hijinks begins, um, propaganda begins. So I guess the main, the main threads I'd like to, the, the main thing I think I'd like to bring up then as an overview, I guess, um, now she's singing, my daughter's singing. Okay, anyway, I, God bless her. I love her singing, I'm not gonna tell her shit, but we'll have to deal with that, is a, a death aversion. Hmm. Um, so capitalism, uh, in essence, is about growing, 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 growing. The only other thing I know that's about only growing is cancer. Cancer is defined by sort of its uh, apoptotic refusal, its refusal to uh, go into cells, to go into apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. Its refusal to die is what sort of like prompts it to replicate. So all cancer cells just refuse to go into apoptosis, refuse to have programmed cell death, and just keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And capitalism is very similar. And culture, because all of our culture is being filtered through the capitalist base economic paradigm lens, is also about death avoidance, um, uh, avoiding getting old. Uh, and yes, we all can say, I'm not afraid of dying and I don't care about death and blah, blah, blah. But what we've also lost in culture through this capitalist paradigm is death initiation. So we really have no congruence with death itself, um, you know, and now we get back to sort of like we bring in like Buddhism or uh, you know any of these sort of like Eastern practices and we get into uh, their inspiration of sort of the Western variation on those Eastern practices. Um, I can only speak from my perspective as a Westerner, but the new age interpretation of Eastern mysticism has also been filtered through this death avoidance from my point of view um, and also sort of pain avoidance so the whole idea of sort of maya or the idea that you know everything is an illusion um, is through the western lens a tool to bypass again a bypassing tool so that everything becomes sort of a bypass so that everything becomes about um, well, in a phrase, in the most new age phrase possible, you create your own reality. There is no real thing other than what you concoct in your mind. And here's the tricky part. That's partially true. <laughs> the only thing that's always left out is that we're all co-creating the same reality. We don't actually live in separate realities. We are all affecting one another. And so the primary like initial tenant of manifestation, which by the way is like late Latin for to make public manifestare, gets completely lost in personal manifestation. And 
And that sort of sums up, I think, in a lot of ways, the problem with New Ageism today um, is that there is a, a pain avoidance that we sort of derive from Eastern mysticism and then a death avoidance that we derive from capitalism. And that sort of all combines to create a really unethical um, for variant of uh, spirituality. Mm. Daniel, go ahead. I love it. Yeah, I, I, I'm really thrilled to be connected with you. I see things um, very similarly. We talk about at uh, here at the Monastic Academy, uh, the kind of one way of framing the metaphysics at the root of the problem through which a lot of the spirituality that uh, prospers in the West is it, it happens within and through the lens of humanism, materialism, and liberalism, and that that sort of refracts this ancient spiritual wisdom into something that is uh, suitable within our economic context and also defanged in terms of its ethical injunctions for collective transformation. Often, you know, it's it's a very interesting and one might say conspicuous how often. Uh, Buddhist uh, teachings in the West align with liberal politics, you know, and, and I would say that there's a good reason for that. And it's because they haven't actually sufficiently deconstructed some of those sort of primary metaphysical or imaginary lenses mm -hmm. through which the world is constructed. And so I like that you kind of frame it in terms of pain avoidance and death avoidance. I'm, I, I agree. You know, where do we kind of paint the target? Uh, you know, I think different ways in different um, uh, facets are, are, are really interesting. And I, I love the way that you, you put it. I think that, yeah, I could jam on this forever. Can we, I, and I'm, I'm smitten to hear that this is my intuition of the two of you hmm. um, getting to know each other. Can we double click on what you just said? The, the conspicuous overlap often of or the, the seeming overlap interpretation of these Buddhist ideals being politically liberal? Yes, this is something that um, the writer David Chapman points out, I think very clearly. He talks about, um, he has this construct called consensus Buddhism, consensus Western Buddhism, that he sort of triangulates around the Insight Meditation Society, you know, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, that whole kind of network presented a version of Buddhism that was um, not confrontational to the primary and basic assumptions of like the American psyche, specifically like the I would say, I would argue the upper middle class American psyche. Now that's shifting a little bit as it engages with like wokeism and sort of the social justice left. There's sort of like an iteration happening within that sphere of Buddhism. But in any case, they didn't, I don't think, try to do a deep deconstruction of some of the sort of like primary metaphysical primitives that Alex is pointing out or that we talk a lot about here at the Monastic Academy or that people like Robert Bea try to point out, you know, things like materialism or humanism, anthropocentrism. Um, these kind of just got installed in the version of Buddhism that most people got exposed to. And partly they got exposed to that form of Buddhism because that form of Buddhism, which didn't critique it, was more viral because it could enter the minds of the population because it didn't have to like... Um, 
it, it, it seemed more um, amenable to the assumptions of the minds that were, you know, it was encountering or that were encountering it. Great. And can you, what Alex just laid out seems like it resonates with you. And I would love to know like what your personal experience around that is. Like what does the new ageism look hmm. like in modern American Buddhism? What, hmm. where are the practices being misunderstood, misconstrued, misapplied? Hmm. What does that look like? And what does a more healthy version of it look like? Yeah. Could you, um, I, I, I kind of can't track what new age means necessarily for you. Can you share a little bit more about what you're pointing to with that frame? Like I, I get Alex, what you said, but for me, like the new age, you know, we could see it as continuing on to the present, or sometimes I think of it as like, an emergent movement from the 60s and 70s that kind of bifurcated along a lot of different lines, like in the 80s and 90s and into today. Like uh, you could read consensus Buddhism as being a kind of cousin of the new age, or you could not. So I, I kind of would appreciate a little bit more clarity in terms of what that framing of new age means for y'all. For me, I think I'm just referring to what Alex briefly laid out, the lens of capitalism and modernism that Buddhism is being seen through. I see. Okay, cool. Yeah. In that case, the, the, the there's a lot of mm, uh, manifestations or faces of that, you know, when they call new age derived Buddhist practice tradition, um, you know, one is the unbundled version of mindfulness that gets divorced from any kind of ethical or even collective practice and gets reframed in terms of stress reduction mm. or um, job performance or, you know, uh, strictly utilitarian and often self-aggrandizing um, uh, benefits, right? And so that's like, the mo probably the most visible way in which I see Buddhism kind of becoming, mm, you know, to put it politely informed by, to put it a little bit more uh, aggressively subservient to capitalism. Um, and, you know, even in the case of a place like Insight Meditation Society, and I love IMS, I love the, I've benefited a lot from the work that's come out of there. But um, one of the critiques that Rob Berbea, one of my favorite teachers has of Western Dharma is the way that ethics has largely been ejected from the training. You know, ethics, if you look at the Pali Canon, were just critical, core. You know, you did ethical work before you hit the cushion. It was seen as like, you know, as important as meditation, certainly. But when you get into most of these practice spaces, it doesn't really have a place of prominence like that of meditation. Um, and in part, uh, that's because when you create invitations to ethical courage or ethical intelligence or ethical greatness, the mind that has within it the pattern of the inner critic or self-hatred uses that as a reason to uh, shame itself. And so I, I believe a lot of these 
emerging Western traditions saw that and saw that there wasn't a market if the, what they were teaching would make people feel ashamed of the way that they were living. And so they just ejected that part of the tradition so that it would fit within the, cap, the flow of capital, so that it would flourish within the system. Now, whether that was a conscious decision or they just did what works, I, you know, I don't know. But in any case, we have now um, a tradition that you can read as in a lot of cases, as being politically radical, you know, the way that the Buddha treated women, created a Sangha for women, or the way that he stood up against war. Uh, and now, you know, it, it, it's pretty defanged when it comes to systems transformation, in my view. I mean, Buddhism was later to the game than Christianity or Judaism when it came to climate change, you know, showed up less fully on that topic than those other faith traditions. And so, yeah, I see that as, as being the early attempts of Buddhism to try to be profitable and some of the compromises it had to make in order to do so. Um, but yeah, so those are some examples. Hmm. So when you say that Buddhism is defanged, my knowledge here is incredibly thin. What I hear you saying is that there are teachings and there are frameworks for ethical ways of thinking that would guide people towards certain behaviors or stances that they get to bypass, or as you say, they just like select away from to, and instead we get what Alex is describing as the hyper individualist navel gazing. So yeah, it's 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 like a supplemental practice to the Western individualistic psyche. Mm. It just helps you survive in that untenable metaphysical position. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's there. I, this brought to mind a study that I read about that was just recently <clears throat> done in 2021, um, where I brought it up here. Uh, mindfulness increased pro-social actions for people who tend to view themselves as more independent. By the way, this whole thing is euphemistically written. I'll translate in a second. Uh, However, for people who tend to view themselves as more independent, e.g. any Westerner, capitalist, right, me, uh, mindfulness actually decreased pro-social behavior. This was like a fairly in-depth study <clears throat> on mindfulness increasing selfishness for people who already have a sort of independent uh, mind frame, which I'm certainly one of them. You know, I grew up that way. It's like, you know, and yet, so I think that's why I'm so intensely um, adamant about, you know, interdependency because it's, it's something that I have to shout at myself as well, you know, I grew up in a, in a complete diaspora within a diaspora. I grew up in Los Angeles in, in the Valley where there was no community. Um, my first, like, I, I might've shared this with you. The first uh, thing that my mom ever kept that I wrote was, starts with, once there was a boy who had a crew. Um, mm-hmm. I just desperately wanted uh, to feel interdependent and like with a team of people. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some great stuff uh, that's been brought up. Um, you know, ethics 
ethics has been killed, uh, in my view, by by a sort of postmodernist relativism, um, like a super relativism, and that relativism is now our ethics, where everything, everyone is allowed to live in their own siloed reality, and by respecting everybody's siloed reality, that is your sort of ethical um, activity. Mm. Um, that's the only ethical activity, um, and. Uh, shame has been entirely pathologized. Um, shaming is a sign of a morally weak, uh, unethical um, uh, person. And, you know, this sort of like hyper-relativism um, as our ethics uh, is really It's, um, it, it denies our interdependency, it denies our intersubjectivity, it denies the reality of the fabric of the universe. And in fact, the, the, the basis for a lot of these uh, new age uh, ideas to begin with. Again, manifestation you know, initially was this idea that everything is connected. And so when you think about something, because your thoughts are connected with everything, it attracts it. But now you're able to somehow sort of partition um, everything from yourself and yet still sort of manifest it within your own reality. And, you know, we think that, oh, well, this is just rhetoric and these are just words, but our language creates the foundation of our realities, of our personal, our, I should say, our perspectives. And, um, and that's why it's very important to, to change our language around these things and to insist on more accurate linguistic reflections of uh, our interdependency. And yeah, and again, you know, what you bring up, Daniel, uh, with regard to uh, refracting these Eastern te teachings through a unconfrontational lens or through a lens which um, prohibits or denies the confrontations of the upper middle class um, devotee. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a really interesting thing to grok and to, to think of. My, my father was of that generation, the sort of Ramdas generation that really mm -hmm. felt that they were on the cusp of this incredible sort of deluge of wisdom and in fact the whole new age moniker is because you know it's almost like a uh, eugenics sort of like driven idea of this this class of people that are super conscious and are going to sort of survive this apocalyptic um you know and, and ascend to 5d as opposed to 3d and that that idea that sort of eugenics bypass of death that's what the whole new age bypass and the whole like ascending to 5D is. It's an ascent away from mortality. Um, and, and again, you know, and to bring in some psychology or Jung at least, um, that which we suppress manifests itself as neuroses. And so you end up with this avoidance of death that then manifests itself as um, an acceleration towards death collectively. Um, so a refusal to behave in more 
legitimately environmentalist ways or a refusal to behave in more communal ways uh, that might ensure our actual survival. Um, and so, yeah, I think one of the one of the most amazing movements right now that that I take stock in is the, you know, the death doula uh, mm. sort of turn toward death, where it's like, okay, I'm going to um, I'm going to take people care of people as they as they die and sort of help facilitate them into death. Um, the, yes. the the death cemetery or the living cemetery where you bury yourself and become a tree. All these sort of you know confrontations that potentially. And I don't want to get this is a whole subject, but potentially psychedelics, um, which can confront us with death. The problem is set and setting, as I've talked about a lot with uh, Daniel Pinchbeck. Um, if the set and setting is capitalism, right? Very easily, the whole tranche of wisdom carried by psychedelics could just end up being refracted through the set and setting of capitalism. And we may very well lose all that. And then again, just have things like mindfulness um, uh, as a tool of bypass. So yeah, it's something we really have to be aware of. It's, a, it's an important, it's a really important issue. Yeah, I mean, for, yeah, for, for me, it's like, um, it's well, everything that you're sharing, Alex, and I think like, yeah, I, I will say, the, what the, what I've said previously in this conversation, like I can put on that critic hat and I can offer a critique of Western Dharma and I can also appreciate it deeply. Like my own practice, my own path has been deeply informed by it. And, you know, there's a way in which we're always moving on from the sins of our fathers. You know, like I, I can only see my path clearly because of how I can see where the, the, the folks who gave it like the karma of the past, how it was handed down to me. And so like, there was a kind of deluge of wisdom in our culture. There, was, yeah. there really was. And there yeah. really like, is this incredible moment in time when we need people to step up into a kind of heroic stance in relationship to the whole. Um, and yet what's going to take us there is not the, the forms of spirituality that are like most prominent. It's gonna, it's gonna emerge, I think, out of the cracks and out of the um, edges, right? And it's gonna, it's gonna come in from there. And then it's gonna be the dominant one, hopefully if we survive and then they'll, they, you know, our, our kids will find the fucked up flaws in that and on and on it will go. Um, and so for, partly hearing you, Alex, like I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I feel a lot of resonance and agreement and I'm, I'm sort of like, and this is where my life is, I suppose, is like, well, so what do we do? You know, how do we build the spiritualities, the Buddhisms, the, the communities of practice that actually um, respond adequately? Yeah. yeah. One thing I'll just double tap on is, um, and this is, this is more of a controversial statement because a lot of people that we know and are friends with use this terminology and you guys might. Um, but the sovereign terminology has slipped hmm. into um, the sort of, uh, you know, metamodern uh, uh, lexicon. And I actually find that very problematic. Um, so when we talk about like, what should we do? The first thing that comes to my mind is, um, is language. I think that at the very, at the very least, we need to sort of, be really cautious around this language. So when I hear 
you know, uh, a lot of today's modern philosophers uh, who want to avert anthropogenic risk and want to save the world and want to make mm. the, the world a better place talk about that we each must achieve our sovereignty. Um, in order to get there, I hear a guarantee of anthropogenic disaster because what I hear is siloed individualism um, in the word sovereignty, personal sovereignty. Um, and of course, I understand it's you know sovereignty from limbic hijack and from the media and whatnot. But when we, if we're not aware that words are going to filter through our capitalist-based economic paradigm, um, and we use a word like sovereignty, thinking that it's going to have this positive effect, we have to. It's like golfing on a slope. <laughs> we gotta we gotta know that the slope is capitalist, and we have to factor for that curve you know we have to curve we have to hit up the hills and knowing that it's going to have to come down and we got to invent or be aware of language mm -hmm. that um that factors in for that uh, that sort of uh, refractive uh mm -hmm. curve mm -hmm. anyway um mm -hmm. yeah and then there's things like you're doing like actual community in person <laughs> mm -hmm. imagine that right like there there's 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 all that and um you know i mean that's that's at the end of the day i think probably the the golden goose, but um, but I do think language is just so important because we're living in a in an age of memes and um, and yeah, we just have to be aware of that. Totally, I mean, it's it's a really interesting, you know, um, kind of trying to build an institution, and and part of the vision for the monastic academy is to um, create the conditions for flourishing of wisdom institutions as a kind of cultural form. Uh, in the West, right? And so this question of like languaging around say like a word like sovereignty, um, it's, it's it, on the one hand, you want language that escapes the excesses of capitalism and the kind of um, naive stance of people in our culture. On the other hand, you don't wanna be so radical that they aren't drawn in, you know? And we, it's like, how do you calibrate so that they can see themselves and see the value vis-a-vis -vis their own assumptions that they probably haven't yet deconstructed, but that doesn't then betray the depth of transformation that's possible out of the individual and into some more integrated whole. It's like really hard. It's, so I, appreciate, it's, it's, I appreciate your focus on language. That's where a lot of my yeah. is too, is like, how do we speak about this stuff in a way that holds that balance? It's, it's really difficult because uh, the I have this conversation or this argument really with a lot of people a lot of the time, which is, um, well, these terms, yes, on their face can be interpreted in any number of ways, but um, they contain nuance. So when you unpack them, you stay they sort of, you know, rarefy and you get to see and unpack and, and understand their, their contents. But I think that we don't unpack as much as we think we unpack. And then in fact, what we really live by are mm. slogans and that the slogans themselves vis-a-vis um, mm. -vis attention actually continue to compact into, and the, you know, uh, this gets very sort of esoteric and metaphysical, but compact into essentially symptoms that are unanalyzable. So you have the American flag, or you have the word freedom. Mm. Nobody even could tell you what that means anymore, but it mm. just has this, this just 
unanalyzable effect. And that's sort of the end game of language is these complete compactments of meaning into just this unanalyzable symptom. And I think that we have to, we, we have to think, <laughs> we have to think in terms of slogans. And I know that sounds sort of counterintuitive and we're all like all about nuance and these things, but the slogans are the things, they're the mascots that are going to end up containing all the nuance. And if they don't properly represent their contents, um, mm. then the game is lost. Yeah, it has me thinking. I mean, one of the, um, I was just speaking with somebody recently and um, they're creating a kind of training where they actually analyze what they call like core social imaginaries as they live in an individual, like this word success, right? Like, what does that mean? And they try to like come into a critical relationship with that word through the body, through the mind, through philosophical discussion in order to kind of is help it escape the trap that it's been, or the box that it's been put in in our culture. And that just, you know, kind of caused me to, but that's that, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot in what you said that, that I just uh, feel. No, that's, that's good work. That's important. We know we all need that. You know, we all have these macrophages like living in us, just these condensed like terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the things that we're talking about, as I think about it in myself, so incredibly deeply embedded. It's like my concept of freedom, my concept of individualism, my concept of myself is so deeply embedded. And I can, from here, I I feel like I see it quite clearly, the disconnect from the embedded construct of like my own life career success Mm. and it's disconnection from our really deep interrelatedness and our deep interconnection Mm. Mm. so there's there's a bit of this that lands as like disaster porn in me just like for myself i'm like oh fuck like 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 i don't know how to i don't know what to what to do with it Mm. Mm. i totally agree and it's like and it's 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 amazing but and i i so much of my life i try to live in deep sense of community but unpacking as you say like unpacking those things like the like the place that freedom lives in my heart as like a professional action sports athlete Mm -hmm. there's Mm. like there's so much there Mm. yeah i mean there's something just personally oh, oh oh sorry sorry oh um no, you go ahead, because I think you were going to say something more directly responding. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, what comes up for me, Ari, is like, you know, the, the kind of approach that I'm most familiar with is sort of industrial strength meditation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of the way that the mainstream meditation practice kind of 
you know, it makes sense, but ultimately is a disservice is that the, the deconstruction that really needs to happen is on a pretty deep level. Like it's all the way down in the bottom of our code, so to speak. And you have to really dig in there to uproot those basic assumptions about the world. And that takes time and it takes precision. It takes expert guidance. It's not easy and it's not for the faint of heart. You know, it's, it, we talk about practice here at the Monastic Academy as a kind of death. Like when we go into an awakening retreat, we're practicing in order to die. We're practicing in order to, to like escape everything that we've constrained our life through. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'm reminded of, of Jordan Hall, a really um, beautiful thing he said that stuck with me when he was asked in an interview, like, what's the most important thing we can do to prepare for collapse or for the kind of dissolution of the system? And he said that you should um, learn to be okay with your own death, learn to accept your death, learn to transcend the fear of death. And that is hard to do. That takes a tremendous amount of work. And like, yeah, it's just fucking hard. I mean, I've been at it for, you know, 15 years in a sense. And I, I still feel like sometimes I'm just feel like humiliated by how hard it is. Um, and hopefully we'll create technology and, and pedagogical resources that will make it faster. But, you know, hearing the kind of critique that Alex shared and that I have, um, I, I resonate with a lot and can like come from as well. Like my response was to move to the monastic academy and to just completely dedicate myself to extracting the malware on top of which the coordination of humanity is destroying the planet. Like I was like, that's clearly what needs to happen. And it's not easy, but like, I don't know what else to do. Mm. for me mm. in my life mm. yeah well the i think the, the the getting right with death thing is is, a, is i mean you're lucky if it's not a daily practice right you're lucky if you can mm. spoon spoon by for a week you know like a week would be absolutely triumphant um yeah um I'll share, I'll share two things uh, quickly. One, one thing I think I've maybe shared before with you, Ari, but um, the freest and most embracing of death, and by the way, I would define freedom very closely to sort of um, being okay with your death, right? Because as soon as we're okay with our deaths, the whole suite of status anxieties, social anxieties, mm. are rendered inert. Um, when we trace, you know, some people have a lot of resistance to this idea, but I'm pretty firm on it, so I'm gonna state it as a fact. When we trace any of our status anxieties back far enough, they relate back to a fear of death. Mm. Um, and just as a hint, the death of ostracization um, mm. which actually meant death and still means death to our DNA. Mm. A social so death. Well, a Ex social exile. death is, is actual, exile. You know, yeah. exile is actual, you know, prospect of freezing in the tundra, mm -hmm. right? So 
um, one thing I used to do, I think that we can, it's very easy to live in a state of sort of low grade stress and low grade sort of status anxiety where, you know, okay, I'm, I'm doing the thing. Oh, can't go outside without the shirt on, you know, it's blazing hot and, you know, I'm going to do all this sort of social protocols. Um, and we can live with that sort of low grade thing and be like, no, I'm not static. I'm, I have no status anxiety. But meanwhile, like, why do I look like everybody else? Well, because I'm, I'm completely mm. anxious. Why do we have dreams about showing up to school naked? Right. We could just as easily have a dream if the society was flipped about showing up to school clothed that would prompt just as much anxiety because everyone else at school was naked. Mm. It's just about being in that socially asymmetrical position where you suddenly feel like you're being looked at. So before going on stage, which is perhaps the most socially asymmetrical position you can be on, um, I learned that one trick um, that I came to depend on too, too much was to get stoned before and heighten my social anxiety, heighten mm. my status anxiety to the point where it was so much that I had no choice. I could no longer be at a functional level of like low grade status anxiety. I had to bring it all forward so that I had to let them. Because mm. otherwise they'd be like, yeah, I'm cool. And go on stage <laughs> and dysfunction. And that's the way I think a lot of us function in life. But if it's basically how meditation I mean, works, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also I was just going to say that um, in my own life right now, so I, I started a band that had a sort of, um, a, a cultish sort of vibe uh, from the outside and uh, a lot of projection. Uh, I felt a lot of projection of like sort of a, a guru-ish projection and, and I felt a compulsion to live up to that. Also internally, that was the, you know, it was like, this is a messianic band. And the, what is the, our mission? Our mission is earnestness in a time of irony Mm. rock and roll irony where you literally I felt like I couldn't smile on stage that it was illegal um, our mission was earnestness and the most punk rock thing I could possibly do uh, and contribute in the tapestry of society was contribute uh, uh, earnestness and mm. then it caught on and suddenly everyone was being earnest in their Honda commercials and in this and they're selling earnest, earnestness everywhere and suddenly I was like fuck <laughs> okay i can't i i have to it was this fucking mind fuck and i should you know i should have known and i remember asking myself early on again through the capitalist lens if love if love became if i was a a, a prophet of love and then suddenly love was profitable mm. would i still continue and it was mainstream would i still continue to to prophesize uh love or would i suffer from some sort of vanguardism where I had to then turn away and go to hate because every too many people are loving. And it's, you know, and it was a answer that, or a question that I wasn't fully able to answer until it actually happened. And turns out my answer was I go away <laughs> um, because I just couldn't, I couldn't take it. Now, I think that whole process, I've grown through that. And I guess I'm sharing all that to say that where I'm at right now in my spirituality, like, you know, um, I call, I have my moniker as bad guru because I figured, you know, um, that will save me like for, that'll buy me some time. Right. Um, I'm very afraid of, uh, and, and cautious through my experience with Edward Sharp of 
forced eye engagement. People putting their hand on my chest and be like, how's your heart? I'm very cautious of performative spirituality. Uh, I'm very uh. cautious of slipping into performative spirituality. I'm very cautious of a fan base that is so enculturated in performative spirituality or in per performance as life. The, the fucking social media, the this, the that, the whole thing, right? Mm. That it's hard to know how to do this in the right mm. way. And I feel like every day is a tightrope walk. And sometimes the safest thing is just not to engage. Just don't write anything. Don't put anything out there. Um, because um, the, that sort of like, that twist into a, um, into a performance and, and if essentially then into a bypass where the rhetoric and the, the language, the how's your heart, the eye gazing, that becomes mm. sort of the whole world of self-inquiry. Mm. Uh, good vibes only, you know. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, uh, thankfully I hear a lot more of these kind of conversations but I, I also have a sneaking suspicion these conversations and shadow work, this can all become performative. This can all become sort of a, um, totally. a, a, a shallow version of this depth. So <laughs> it's just something we have to work, watch out for constantly. Yes. You know, it's like when you, <laughs> when you teach, right? It's like, how do we, and I, I talk about this with uh, masters of various things. Like, how do you, Daniel, for instance, you're, you're in this position at this mm. monastic academy and you figure out a trick. Uh, mm. and, and the trick is, oh my God, I can get people to confront their death. And it's very emotional mm. when we do it this way. Mm. And it's this series of linguistic prompts and it mm. generally yields this sort mm. of incredible emotional whatever. And so you do it, and then the next day you do it. And the first day it was a ritual, it was a discovery. Mm -hmm. And the next day it becomes sort of like a tradition, starts to embark on its traditional process. And suddenly now it's like baked into the lexicon. And then it's just by rote. And you just tell people, yes, do this, do that, do this. In fact, you know what, I'm going to write a book about this. And uh, it's just these, you know, these steps. And then those steps, okay. start, and then it condenses, and it can, can be like, you know, a five-minute, uh, uh, you know, um, in between breakfast and, and the first uh, client of the day, how do we like continually puncture that process so that it's not only alive for them, but it's alive for us? Because by making it alive for ourselves as teachers, we can constant, we can disrupt that sort of uh, compression process yeah. and that condensation process. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, it strikes me, this is why like Zen has such a distrust of the written language, you know, that they don't want to write things down because of the way that ossifies the aliveness mm -hmm. and the vividness and the like, just like the reality of what is being offered. Um, we, you know, it's, it, and it's fascinating as it, that kind of thing lives in the context of a real community. You know, I think uh, reflecting on what you shared, Alex, that like, I think so much of what I value about living around people is that there is a sense of shared value such that if I started to come from a dead place, I would get, I would get called out. Mm. And like, gosh, that's so valuable. I mean, it strikes me. I, like, 
I have a, I have a suspicion based on what you said that like spirituality, at least deep spirituality, deep transformation actually can't really be done in public. Mm. Like it requires some privacy. It requires a kind of um, inner chamber that you feel safe in to really reveal yourself. I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't really, par- I participate le- much less than I used to on social media. And, and in part it was because of this, it was like, I could see the sort of information ecology incentive structures and how they were like subtly informing the kinds of teachings, the ways of expressing ourselves, what we felt like we could share about ourselves with each other. And I was, I, it was just, I just felt very suspicious, frankly. I didn't really understand it deeply, but I felt suspicious. Um, I think no. that you put, you, you've said it well. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's... Yeah. I, I think, I think the other thing I'd say is that it's also for me, um, it's like, this is why I have a teacher who can like poke me, right? If I start getting dead about it, who, who can see me in a lot of cases better than I can see myself. And that's also one of the things that's been sort of oh, debased in our contemporary spiritual scene is that they're the, the kind of more hierarchical teacher-student relationship where you vest a, a significant amount of teacherly authority in somebody who you see as wiser than you. Um, in an ongoing way is kind of been outdated. We're seeking new forms of pedagogy and teacherly, where, where we vest teacherly authority. But there's a reason that these traditions did it a certain way for thousands of years, you know, and if you can get over the shadows of it, and if you can kind of find somebody skillful enough, it's very helpful in terms of not allowing the spiritual path to get eaten by the human mind like it tends to. That sounds like you're alluding to the, to the pitfalls of, of the guru. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's pitfalls in either direction. There's huge pitfalls in autodidacticism and there's pitfalls in, um, in the kind of guru model or the, just any model of uh, teacherly authority where somebody can kind of takes the seat of being wiser than you of, of kind of knowing more about the thing that, you're pursuing than you do uh-huh. and autodidactic what like self-taught you know that, that's i think quite common in, in the um individualistic western spiritual scene where you're sort of just like picking and choosing from various uh subcultures uh-huh. and spiritual uh-huh. milieus and sort of just like i like this i like this i'm interested in this um you know, when John Verveke talks about the shadow side of, of autodidacticism in this territory very well when he speaks of how we don't, we can't then see that thing which is selecting. You know, we're selecting through the lens of really like our wants in a sense. But, you know, why do we want what we want and why should we trust what we want? Why is that a trustworthy thing to base our path on seems like it's not to me (laughs) especially a path with such import indeed yeah i I think i think this autodidacticism and verse sort of you know uh 
uh, educate, uh, well, well, what would we call it, like schooling, um, is is a really it's a thing that I'm in the in the case of spirituality, it's a very it's very difficult because my own my own experience. I remember um, first of all, we should have been I should have been taught how to breathe by you know like like in interesting ways by like mm. maybe the first thing I was taught. Hmm. like age three like hey check out this breath hmm. <laughs> um instead it wasn't until i was uh you know like 17 hmm. um so um so there's that so I, I almost had to be an autodidact because there was yes. no fucking teacherly authority like nobody hmm. taught me anything there was nobody 100%. there right so um so when i was Early on, I was uh, I would I would I would breathe. I would get creative with my breath, and I would do all these really fascinating, <laughs> like amazing swirls and shapes with my breath. And I created all these things up my spine, and this way and that way. And one I called the whale, and the other the corkscrew, and all these things. And I would draw them out, and then I heard about kriya yoga. I was like, ah, oh, mm. it sounds similar. I should go mm. become initiated into kriya. And so when there's this amazing master who I, who I really love, Prajnanananda, and uh, I went and got initiated and it ruined everything because suddenly I couldn't get out of my mind that the only right way to breathe, if you're an initiate at level one, was this way. Yeah. Dude, it... it <laughs> there's something also to be said for autodidacticism. So it's it's this... It's this balance, and um, and yeah. I think where where we where I where I long for a teacherly authority is not necessarily in areas that are that, where I can be creative, like like breath work. I feel like is a for me mm-hmm. a very has an immense creative potential where you can just go. Mm-hmm. It's like dreaming or something. Um, uh, but the rigor, the mm-hmm. uh, everything around it, I need a fucking teacher. Like I need, mm-hmm. I need not only teacher. I need inspiration. I need to see someone else doing better uh, than I am in inspiring mm-hmm. me because it's so easy for me to compress the time. Like I'll meditate for 30 minutes. Then it's like, Oh, I figured out this one way. I'll do that just like that. The next time then I start condensing my time until I've made myself into like my own little app. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's the process I go through constantly where I see little shortcuts and I start taking those shortcuts and I boil the meditation down to 30 seconds and then it's ruined. So anyway, but I just want to figure out anyone out there listening who's like, uh, you know, who, who has ever thought about being creative with your own breath. In my opinion, you know, you have my permission. <laughs> totally. totally. Well, yeah. it's, it's well said, Alex. I think, um, yeah, it would, it would be uh, you know, incomplete to not at least express the shadows of teacherly authority, you know, make reference to it, even as it lives in Maple, where the head teacher here is like, I think as far as I can tell, highly skilled. There's still the um, shadow of creating a context in which people can forfeit their own agency, which we see all the time. You know, they, they, they just give themselves completely to the teacher and there's beauty in that, but then they completely lose track of like, wait, it's my breath. I can breathe the way I want. And something in me says that I ought to breathe this way and that that's valid and important, you know? 
and also that you can actually hold the perspective of the teacher alongside yours and, and like be in the discomfort of trying to like work it out, right? Like that requires a certain level of maturity. Um, and we could get into the kind of developmental dynamics of why it is that so many people arrive at a place like the monastic academy and don't have sufficient coherency of self, you know, what in sometimes in the metamodern space they call sovereignty, the ability to know like what's mine, what's yours, kind of sense-making capacity to actually be in an earnest teacher-student relationship without completely compromising their self. And so, you know, there's shadows in both directions. I, I, I think there's some kind of didacticism and teacherly authority that um, needs to be kind of created and discovered right now. Um, and partly it's because it, there's just not enough teachers. There's actually not enough. We're in the midst of, as John Verbeke says, a wisdom famine. And there's just not enough teachers, skilled teachers to go around. You know, that's partly why we want to create more wisdom institutions because true teachers emerge through institutions. You know, they, they, you know, sometimes you get lucky and one just kind of rolls out randomly, you know, somehow. But if you look at like, you know, Zen history, they all came up in a monastic system where they were rigorously engaged in pedagogies and teacher-student relationships and ethics and institutional constraints and verifications. Like, we don't really have any of that right now in the West. We have brands. And my intuition on the teacher-student thing is that our current understanding of teacher is probably insufficient and it's probably more like tutor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because oh, yeah, as, yeah, totally. as yeah, you totally. said, these things can't be done in public. And if you're 30 students and one teacher, my intuition is that is pretty far into public. Uh, can you say more? I'm not, I'm not sure. Oh. That's just like a big group to be doing that kind oh. of work. Oh, I in. see. Yeah, I would say that, you know, so um, here at, at Maple, um, some teaching happens in public, you know, like we have Q&As, um, sometimes people get corrected, there's Dharma talks, those happen with the whole group. And then there's one of the core educational contexts is the interview room, where everybody has a one-on-one interview with the teacher. And they kind of get, you know, they assess their practice and you don't know what's going to happen in there. It's kind of a spontaneous meeting of you and the teacher. And that is held as very private and sacredly. So, you know, there's nobody ever else in there except in very rare, like teacher training circumstances and only with permission. And even then it actually changes the vibe when there's a, somebody, you know, even trying to just observe changes the vibe. Certainly. This has been so fun. I'd love to watch you, Daniel, just like ruminate on these really just eloquent and astute observations of spirituality that Alex brings. Yeah, this is delightful. I really appreciate Alex, the way you're helping me like connect with my um, kind of like critical faculties. You know, I think Given the roles I play, I often have to find myself in more of a like peacemaking mediator position. But like, I just love, I I love critiquing, especially Western Dharma. And I I really appreciate the opportunity to like be in that space with both of you. It's it's delightful. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to, uh, I love that you're in this 
very often I have these conversations and they sort of are, are ungrounded in, in daily, um, well, in a, in, in a way in which they could be applied in a daily way to, uh, to practitioners of spirituality and that you find yourself in this position, not find yourself, that you put yourself in this position um, where, you know, you're at this uh, monastic academy now, I presume. Yeah. Um, and you're going to walk out that door and go right into it with everyone and, and bring this conversation. I mean, that's just so beautiful. Um, so yeah, this is, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. The, Daniel says this is the last thing he's doing before a two day silent retreat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I still actually have lunch. So I'm going to have lunch in about five minutes and I walk out that door down the hallway and go to the main hall. We'll have lunch and then we'll, be moving into silence yeah <laughs> well it gave you some things to chew on totally yeah hopefully i won't think about them at all <laughs> I, bet, I, bet I, I bet i will i bet that i am all right guys any closing thoughts here it was fun i'm really happy to have done this and i'm happy to come back on for more conversations like this it's um yeah just yeah, you hold a really lovely space on this podcast, I can tell. And yeah, just glad to meet you, Alex, and glad to be connected with you both. Yeah, likewise. Um, yeah, this will be resonating for me uh, throughout my unsilent uh, weekend and, um, and uh, glad to be here. And yeah, any other time. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you guys. Take care. Have a good day. Blessings. Later. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I thought that was totally rad. These guys are both super dope, and I'm definitely going to have them both back on the podcast soon, especially Daniel Thorson. Him and I need a one-on-one here, especially after this great talk um, and listening to more and more of his podcast. I definitely need some of his guidance and insight in my own life as I deal with some of these newfound collapse concepts that I've been listening to on his podcast. Um, but yeah, like I said in the intro, if you like this podcast, consider supporting it on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash airy in the air. And if you'd like to work with me, I do have spots left in my philosophical coaching practice, which is a really fun. I really enjoy it. It's very fulfilling, very rewarding for me. So you can head over to airy in the air.com to sign up for my newsletter, get barked at by my dog and or <laughs> click the scheduling link for a free 45-minute coaching call. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.